Well, um, my name is Damon Cup, and we are starting the new year this in Sunday school this year with uh, a series on church history. And um, what I wanted to do, if you didn't get handouts, they're on the back table, um, although you're, you're probably not missing a whole lot if you don't have them. It's a pretty sparse outline for this week, uh, because really I'm just going to cover the question of why we study church history, why is it important. Um, and so we're, that's how we're going to begin this, this year. Um, let me pray and then we'll get, get started. Father, we thank you so much for this new year. We thank you for uh, just the ability um, to always turn back to you and um, every new year just to recommit ourselves to you and recommit ourselves to the disciplines that we need to grow in godliness, to grow in our in Christ-like character. I pray that you would help us this year. Lord, we pray for this series. We just ask that you would give us wisdom as we look at church history. Um, we ask that you would give us hearts that are humble before you, before uh, just the concepts and the people we'll be looking at. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, as we just think through some of the issues, and Lord, help us to, to have a, a greater appreciation of, of who you are as you work through church history. And Lord, we just ask that uh, you would bless this time. We thank you for this day. We even ask that you would start preparing our hearts for worship today, and uh, that we would come before you in humility and with praise and honor on our lips. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry. Um, we are, again, as I said, we're starting a series on church history. And um, I, I, again, I want to kind of do a, a, just one day on why we study church history, why it's important. I think most of us would, would realize that um, in our culture, there's a general attitude of apathy toward history. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen uh, some of the uh, things like man on the street kind of things where people go up to people and ask them uh, questions about history and um, it doesn't take long to realize that we really do have an apathetic attitude toward history. So history in general is not something that we typically spend a lot of time with, but in particular church history. Um, I think Henry Ford summarized this attitude well. I'm sure y'all have probably heard this quote. Anybody hear the quote by Henry Ford about history? Nobody? Uh, <laughs> uh, Henry Ford's famous for saying, essentially, I'm not quoting him verbatim, but essentially what he said was history is bunk. Um, and that's sort of the attitude that we as Americans have toward history, um, and I think you might be familiar also, you, you, hopefully you're familiar with this song, uh, Wonderful World, a song that came out in the 60s. Anybody know that song? Um, how does that, what, one of the famous, it starts off by saying, I don't know much about history. Y'all remember that? Uh, then, you know, not only history gets thrown under the bus, but biology and, um, yeah, 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 Sam Cooke. Uh, so <clears throat> that's sort of the idea but what does he know about? What does the song go on to say? But what I do know is I love you. And, and so it's 
this idea that it doesn't really matter what happened in the past. What, what matters for Americans is what's happening right now, uh, what affects me in this moment. Um, and so that's why I wanted to talk about the importance of church history. Uh, in 2015, the Smithsonian Magazine published an article about the lack of historical knowledge in the United States. And it starts off this way. I'm just going to quote a small section of it. It says, last year, Polytech, a student group at Texas Tech University, went around campus and asked three questions. Who won the Civil War? Who is our vice president? And who did we gain our independence from? Students' answers ranged from the South, won the Civil War, um, only in Texas, uh, <laughs> And, for the, and I have no idea was the answer, for, was a common answer for the rest of the questions. However, when asked about the show Snooky, starred in Jersey Shore, or Brad Pitt's marriage history, they were able to answer correctly. Um, so again, just kind of a flavor that we as Americans have. It's just this general apathy toward history. Uh, but I would suggest to you this morning that... Um, history in general, but in particular and specifically, church history is extremely important for us to study and to learn. Um, so let's look at four reasons church history is important. Um, and again, I'm going <clears> to <throat> move through. I have two, if you look at your outline, the first section is four reasons why church history is important. Uh, then there's two questions that I'm going to ask, and there's no, no bullet points in those, in, the, in those next two sections. And the reason for that is, is I'm really hoping you'll drive the outline for that part. <clears throat> so, four reasons church history is important. First of all, Christianity is a religion of history. And this shouldn't, you, you should obviously identify this one. Church, Christianity is a religion of history. You look at the Bible, the majority of the Bible is history, right? Uh, everything about Christianity is related to the history. There is a development of history. There is a view of history, which we're going to come to at the end. Um, we all make assumptions when it comes to history. At the end, we're going to look at some of the assumptions we make as, as Christians regarding church history or history in general. Um, think about the New Testament. The New Testament starts with four books that are essentially a narrative or a history of the life of Christ. And so they are essentially pointing to the fact that the Messiah has come. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. This is what his life, this, these are the things he did, these are the things he taught. Again, history focused. And then you have the fifth book of the New Testament is essentially a brief history of the very early apostolic church. Um, and so Christianity is a religion of history. Again, the gospel itself is based on historical facts, right? You remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised... A historical fact. If this fact of the resurrection did not happen, what does he say? Then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Think about what Paul is saying. If this historical event 
did not happen, it's all meaningless. And so Christianity is a religion that is grounded in history, and so history should be important to us. Secondly, we can learn about humanity, and by extension, we can learn about ourselves. Um, Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing new under the sun. Human nature is the same, whether it's the first century or the 21st century. Human nature is the same. The only thing that changes are the circumstances. Um, technology changes. You know, you're not going to have people uh, having to commute to work like we commute today 500 years ago. However, human nature remains the same, essentially, and so we can learn. We can see how people handled, handled not, not conflict, I was going to say uh, challenges in life, how they dealt with um, debates or arguments within church history. But we can learn a lot about human nature. Um, by the way, this, how many of y'all read biographies? A lot of people. Um, we do that because we can learn from people because essentially our human nature is the same. We identify with them <clears throat> or we learn from their mistakes. <clears throat> Third, there is a grand narrative. And basically what this means is we recognize that in history, there is a movement. Um, it begins at the beginning, and we see that in the book of Genesis, and we see this grand narrative or meta-narrative. It is a, a story that transcends our particular lives. Does that make sense? Um, and we as Christians, we identify that in history, and we can see, because of this grand story, we can situate ourselves in that grand story, and it gives context to our lives. Um, and that grand story is God's plan of redemption. God is doing something in this world. I think someone said that history is basically his story. And I think that's a good way to think about history. Uh, John Hanna, um, he's, the <clears throat> he's a professor at, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, he wrote a book called Our Legacy, um, and he writes this in the book. He says, the first of two monumental events in all of the Bible, one, one of the central foci of the book is the cross of Christ. So, in this grand story, one of the main central events is the cross of Christ, where God's promised deliverer became humanity's redeemer, where he, Jesus, rendered a sacrifice, a payment in his own lifeblood to divine justice in behalf of sinners, where atonement was made for sin, whereupon God could justly and freely forgive sin without a violation to his holiness. So that's the first focus of the grand story. He goes on, the second grand focus of the Bible is his return as king to rule over his redeemed. And so you see in this grand story, in this meta-narrative of what God is doing, this story of redemption, uh, what we're going to be looking at, at least what we're going to start to look at in this series, is really the period between those two focuses. You have the cross of Christ and the return of Christ, and that, 
that in-between period is going to be the church, the history of the church. And so, it, again, the study of church history gives us contact, context and, and reminds us of God's grand plan that we are here for a reason and we fit in this story, this, this, this meta-story or meta-narrative that we, that we are studying in church history. So we, again, can find context, and it reminds us that God is at work even today. And number four, the last one, the church's task is to preserve and present the faith. And, and again, uh, I'm, I don't want to exalt church history too high here, but church history helps us. It helps remind us of why we're here. It helps us to see how has the church done this in the past, what are the struggles the church encountered? What are the struggles people encountered? And, and how did they deal with those? And it helps remind us of our purpose as the church. Uh, we see the mistakes and we can learn from those. Also, we not only learn from the mistakes of the past, but we have the ability to learn from some of the most gifted teachers in church history. God gives certain men with the ability to teach. He gives them incredible insight into the Word of God. And we have, in church history, some of the greatest teachers. And so we should avail ourselves of those people. Uh, and in, in, a, in an essence, we learn from them. It's, it's like passive or indirect discipleship. Um, you, I just remember um, after I became a believer wrestling with the issue of God's sovereignty and, and man's freedom. And how does that all work out? How are we responsible when God is sovereign? Any of y'all wrestle with that? Um, <laughs> uh, I think most people do. But I remember the one thing that really helped me uh, understand and, and come to some resolution with that that issue is Jonathan Edwards' freedom of the will. Um, tremendous insight. Um, and so we, again, should avail ourselves of, of, of these great thinkers of the past. Um, this probably is a good spot for me to stop for just a moment. Uh, again, I don't want to exalt church history too high because there is a danger um, that some people make with church history. We need to be careful uh, that we're not using church history in a way, um, we're not giving too much authority to church history. Uh, and I guess this is my caution. We, we should be very careful in using church history as a grounds for making a judgment, whether a doctrine or, um, uh, or a practice is right or wrong. Does that make sense? Um, church history is not infallible. Well, part of it is. Uh, what we see in Acts is infallible. That is an infallible history. Um, but beyond that, when you leave the Bible, church history is not infallible. Therefore, we should be really careful if we're leaning too much on church history to demonstrate whether something is right or wrong, good or bad. Um, Y'all with me? So, uh, just one example. If we're going to argue for the fact that 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 the argue for the deity of Christ, 
um, we should use what is our grounds to argue that? What should be our grounds? The Bible. The Bible is infallible. The Bible is our final authority. And we shouldn't go to church councils to demonstrate that. Now, what we can do is we can learn from church councils and we can identify that a church council was correct or incorrect in their assessment of a particular thing, but we don't want to lean too heavy on looking at church councils um, because they can make mistakes. They're not, they're, they're not uh, infallible. They are fallible. Um, nevertheless, church history is important. Um, it's just not our final authority. Um, so, now that we've looked at... Um, why church history is important. I wanted to really ask some questions, and again, there's no bullet points here because I'm hoping that you guys can help fill in the outline at this point. Um, First question I have is this. What are the consequences of neglecting church history? Now, I have some bullet points, but I'm not going to give them necessarily. (laughs) I want to hear from you guys. What are some of the consequences of neglecting church history? Yes, David. Yes, uh, to avoid making the same mistakes. Um, um, I don't remember who said it, but there's a famous saying uh, that those who ignore history are bound to repeat it. Um, We want to avoid making the same mistakes. Good. What else? What are some of the other consequences of neglecting church history? I know it's early. It's New Year's, pretty much New Year's, and uh, you guys are tired, but... Think a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Very good. So let me repeat it just for, the, for whatever I'm doing here uh, with this microphone. Uh, <laughs> so there are, there are heresies or errors in the past, and we can more easily or readily uh, uh, identify them, yeah, by studying church history. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, we just kind of have recycled uh, heresies that keep getting brought up. Uh, yeah, that's really good. I actually have a quote with that, and then I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go here. Um, James Bradley and Richard uh, Muller wrote a book on church history, and they said they point this out. They say due to the ignorance of the patristic period, the modern church has tended to duplicate in its theology the errors and problems of the first five centuries of Christian thought. Um, so to your point, we have kind of this fuzzy theology. Uh, we, don't, we don't think clearly about issues that have already happened. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, just a lack of appreciation. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's such a... There's so many uh, rich resources and things to appreciate about church history. Yeah. Yes, Ryan.
good point we we tend to think more highly of our uh intellectual abilities and look down on those of the past i think it was c.s lewis that called it chronological snobbery um but yeah you start reading some of these guys and you quickly realize wow yes sir Absolutely. Give, and I'll just repeat that. It gives us a broader perspective on God's kingdom. Um, it does. It helps us to see. And you see this even, uh, you know, obviously our, we're looking at church history. You have to decide who you're going to look at and what you're going to study. Um, and I'm going to, I was planning on closing with some of this, but <clears throat> there is a, an element of we, again, going back to what Ryan was saying, is we can be very self-focused and and not consider the fact that they're they're the church as a whole we're studying church history and what does that mean we we find ourselves situated in a context that we don't know anything about if we don't know church history Uh, and there's a much broader context than what we have right here right now Um, and i mean we think about it even even modern times there's a much broader context than what we typically realize. I mean, there's not just the church here. There's the church in Africa. There's the church in Asia. There's the church all over the world. And God is at work. Uh, But we tend to think right here, right now, right? Uh, Well, that's true of history as well. Uh, You look at the church um, one day, you know, assuming we've all put our faith and trust in Christ, we'll be in heaven, and we'll be with people who've put their hope and trust in Christ, right, from throughout the ages, and and again, I think it gives us a, a much better perspective on life. Yes, Craig? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, just repeat that. A great encur- we can find great encouragement and challenge from those in the past um, because there's very, very good examples of faithfulness to the Lord, and that's absolutely true. Um, yes. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, so we can learn from how well people did things or how faithful they were, and we can also learn from them not being faithful and the consequences. Yeah, good, very good. 
Um, a couple of other thoughts that I had. Y'all pretty much covered everything. Um, what about confusion of primary and secondary issues? Uh, we can tend to have disunity in areas where we probably don't ha need to have disunity. And we can have unity in areas where we probably need to have disunity because we don't always identify what primary and secondary issues are. Um, you can see that just looking at church history because they're dealing with a lot of these doctrinal issues. Um, what about adoption of cultural values? Church history sometimes helps us to see ourselves in a way, I think you're getting back to the point that was made earlier, helps us to see ourselves in, with a different perspective uh, so that we, we may not adopt cultural values. Um, yeah, I think this was mentioned, uh, but I, I have weak foundations. I don't remember who mentioned this, but uh, people are, we can be carried away by fads, theological fads. Um, the Da Vinci Code, anybody remember that? Um, there can be things that we can be carried away by if we don't know church history. Uh, and then one last thing I had was fuzzy ecclesiology. Um, we can tend to not see the church and the importance of the church. Um, well, there's an appreciation for the church that we gain through the study of church history. Uh, we can tend to have a, and, and uh, you know, I can go to church, or I don't have to go to church, or, you know, I can go to this church on this Sunday uh, just sort of a, again, just a, a lack of commitment to the church that I think church history helps you to, to have a better understanding of what the church is. The church is not optional. Uh, we can tend to, again, have a more consumer approach to church. Okay, <clears throat> second question. And if it seems like I'm asking the same question a different way... <laughs> I'm not. What are the benefits of studying church history? Yes, Ryan. We're reminded that men are men's best. Right. The good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, again, uh, we can have hope because we see that God uses uh, men and women who have deep flaws, um, and we see that throughout church history. Good. Anything else? Yes. Mm-hmm.
Good. So yeah, uh, studying church history, just reading about uh, what people went through gives us can give us courage and hope, um, and even convict us. So good. And I think somebody else had. Was it Phil? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, if I could just summarize it, we basically, uh, we tend to have this attitude of, of, of Lord, I'm the only one, you know, we're <laughs> and God says, no, 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 uh, there's a lot of people who've suffered in the ways and probably worse than in the way that you're suffering. Um, and so it, it help, gives us a perspective on the trials and tribulations that we may be going through. Um, we can tend to think, you know, it's never been this bad. Uh, then you look at church history, and yes, sir. Yeah. So again, you can see God's providence as he works through history. We see this even in our own lives, just our personal histories, right? Um, you can see how God is working in your life. Uh, you can imagine, again, going back to the grand story, the, the, uh, God's plan of redemption, that this is not all there is. There is a big picture, um, and so we Again, we can see God at work through these things. It gives us an appreciation for God's providence. Good. Yes, sir. And then I'll come back. Psalm 111 seems great over here. Yeah, yeah, it promotes worship, good, yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So again, we can appreciate the fact of the richness, uh, just the of, of what we have today because of the people that we've learned from in the past. Uh, it, again, I think, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of people who have uh, pushed us further because of their work and their, their thought and their conflict. Um, and so we, we can, again, a, a appreciate where we are because of the past. Good. I think there was another hand. No? Yes. Mm. Yeah, the preservation of God's word, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Um, and you see that through church history, the fact that God is, has preserved. Uh, and even though the, the light of the word, um, has, there's been attempts to distinguish it. And you see that throughout history. Um, and yet God's word endures because his word will endure Good. Any final thoughts on that? Okay. Uh, well, y'all pretty much covered everything I had. Um, <laughs> I did want to just read to you uh, in light of the benefits of studying church history. Uh, it is New Year's, and um, I toyed with the idea of reading uh, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions to you this morning. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, but I thought we would all be crawling out of here, so uh, let me just read you a few. Jonathan Edwards wrote uh, throughout the, his lifetime, he, he wrote resolutions, and he committed himself to reading these resolutions every year. Uh, I'm just going to kind of read a sampling of his resolutions just to give you an idea, uh, an example of a man who devoted himself to being faithful and, and, and worshiping the Lord. Um, he wrote his second, his twenty-second resolution is resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can, with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yet yea, violence I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Again, just this perspective of living for the other world, living for the kingdom of God, and not for this world. Um, number 41, resolve to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. Number 16, sorry these aren't in order because they're grouped by, um, by the theme of them. And I pulled this off Desiring God's website. You can look at his resolutions there if you'd like. Number 16, this is regarding relationships. Resolve never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. Uh, never to speak evil unless there is a good end. Um, so how do we treat and talk about other people? 
31, resolve never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and the love of mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule, often when I have said anything against anyone, to bring it to and to try it strictly by the test of this resolution. I think I had one more. Yep. Number 28, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Um, again, uh, I, don't, I don't know the numbers. Does anybody know the number of resolutions? I think it's probably around 100, I would guess. Um, but these are resolutions that he um, committed himself to reviewing and even thinking through. And I thought it was appropriate for us this morning in light of the new year to think through some of those resolutions. Um, hopefully you guys are resolved this year to uh, not only learn from church history, but to learn from God's word and to learn how to better love one another and love God better. Um, all right, moving on. Three convictions of Christian history. The first one. We've already kind of hit on this, God's providence. And basically what that means is that God preserves and governs everything in the universe. Uh, God ordains everything that comes to pass. And so obviously there's questions that come about, and I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions with this, but uh, just let me simply um, give you kind of a, something to think about. Because the immediate question that probably most people have when you think about God's providence is, well, what about evil? If it comes to pass, God ordained it. Uh, the doctrine of providence, God is in control. God is preserving and sustaining everything. So, but we need to be careful because God does not author evil. Um, just because something bad happens doesn't mean that God authored it, it means that he, he ordained it. What does it mean that he ordained it? Well, God, again, you have to think of the big picture. God, there is a, a, the story of redemption is being written even to this day. We are between the two focus points of the Bible, the cross and the return of Christ. And so, uh, God is ordaining Everything that comes to pass, in other words, he's using everything that comes to pass for the end to which he's heading. Does that make sense? He doesn't author evil, but he ordains evil. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles. I think the clearest example of this is in Genesis chapter 50. This is the, <clears throat> you'll remember the story of Joseph and his brothers and... Um, you know, Joseph's brothers uh, sold him into slavery, and, and you know, there's an incredible series of um, what some might claim tragic events, although there's really no such thing as tragedy from a Christian perspective. Uh, but in, in chapter 50, um, you see this point where the brothers realize we are in big trouble because Joseph... We have treated Joseph really badly, and Joseph is now 
going to turn and take it out on us. And so they, uh, verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us a command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Again, what they did to Joseph, they even recognized themselves was evil. And now, please forgive the transgression of, your servant, of, of the servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him, and his brothers also came, also fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, and this is the key point, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I think we see there uh, what we mean by God's providence. The brothers had evil intentions. They intended evil. God didn't make them do this. He didn't violate their will, but he used their evil for good. And so God ordains whatever comes to pass, uh, but he does not author sin. Uh, you can think of Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Yeah, even bad things, right? And we see that in our own lives. God uses bad things even when someone intends evil against us, God can use those things and does use those things for good. Um, you think about the most evil thing that's ever happened in history, the crucifixion. The most wicked thing that's ever happened is the crucifixion of Christ. And you see God ordained that for good. Secondly, uh, the second conviction that we have is, uh, when we come to history as Christians is that God guides the world with purpose. Again, we kind of already talked about this, but um, God is doing something. Now, it may be hard for us and difficult for us to understand exactly what he's doing because sometimes he doesn't uh, reveal his ways to us. Um, but we can trust in the fact that God is moving history toward an end. He is doing things and he does things with purpose. Uh, he never acts aimlessly. He has a goal in mind, and that is the, the second coming, the fulfillment of all things. And that kind of brings us to the last conviction. Uh, God is bringing history to a conclusion. Uh, history is linear. Uh, one day Christ will return as king and judge. Um, and, and then all things, the fulfillment of all things, will be complete. We live now in the Again, the, in, in this interesting period where uh, it's the already but the not yet. We, we have the first coming of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the hope, the forgiveness of sins is possible. And now we're living in this time of church history where we're anticipating the complete fulfillment of all things. So three convictions, God's providence, God guides the world with purpose, and he is bringing it to a conclusion. So, <clears throat> where are we moving um, from this point in this? We have 
these six weeks. We're going to be looking basically at the history of the early church, um, and I'll most of the time we'll spend looking at the second and third century, um, and then that seems like a good break. Um, and then the next time church history comes around, Lord willing, if I'm a teacher, we'll keep moving through. Um, so, uh, second and third century, we're going to see the challenges that the early church faced, the persecutions that they faced, which was very intense. Uh, we'll look at how they responded. Some, uh, we'll see how God raised up great thinkers and great men who stood uh, for the faith and, and even debated and argued for the faith. Um, we're going to see also how they begin to start responding to false teaching that's starting to creep up in the church. Um, there's a lot that's happening in these 200 years that we're going to be looking at, roughly 200 years, uh, and really much more than we can cover in this, these six weeks. Um, just up front, my primary source in this is Gonzalez's The Story of Christianity, um, uh, Volume 1. And um, even, even when you look at I'm leaving a lot out from his book, uh, but even, even the choices that he made when he was writing his book, he had to leave a lot of things out because there's just a lot to church history. We have to make decisions, uh, and it reminded me of, y'all remember when Christian History Magazine came out with that 100 Most Important Events? Y'all remember that? Um, how many of y'all had a copy of that? Yeah, Nobody? Uh, <laughs> Christian History Magazine, I don't even remember when it was, maybe in the 90s, I don't remember. They came out with the uh, 100 Most Important Events, and they, at the beginning, they, had, they wrote this. Um, we would not be at all surprised if someday we find out that God's list differs significantly from our list on the, most one, the, the 100 Most Important Events in Church History. As I was, I was kind of putting together my outline for this six weeks, I was thinking about that quote, and I thought, um, I, I wonder how this would look differently if God were teaching church history. Um, obviously, it'd be a, a lot more interesting. Um, but what what would God choose? What are the who are the people God would choose to focus on, and what events would God bring up and and point out and bring to our attention? Um, Think about the Mark 12 with the widow's offering. You know, here are all these people coming in, putting in large sums of money. And then here comes this poor widow, and she puts in basically a penny. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I tell you the truth, she put in more than all of them. Um, God's perspective is different than ours. Uh, so I guess I say that as, uh, number one, to encourage us. Um, God uses everyday people, even people who aren't mentioned in church history. God's using those people. Uh, there's countless lives that could be brought up and maybe even more important than the people we're looking at, um, but we just don't know about them. Um, so uh, hopefully that's encouraging to you uh, that God uses everyday people in everyday situations. When you go to work, God, God can use you. He wants to use you. Uh, when you're at the grocery store or whatever you're doing, um, just remember the fact that we are in church history. We're moving toward a finale. Um, there is an end in sight, and we are here with purpose. 
Uh, and so, um, yeah, God doesn't call everyone to be an Augustine or a Luther or a Calvin or whoever, but he does call all of us to be faithful. And hopefully as we go through this series, uh, it'll be encouraging uh, to us to be faithful. So let me pray. Lord, we do thank you for the testimony, not only of the men that we see in the Bible, but the men and women we see in history. And Lord, we long to be faithful to you. I pray that you would help us as we look at church history that, that would encourage us and, and uh, just uh, encourage us to be more faithful, uh, to long to live for your kingdom, to long to live increasing our pleasure in the future world. Uh, Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.